Psalm 139. Kids, I hope you'll read along with us if you're able. The children's bulletins this morning are about this psalm. And if you have one of those as you go through it, you could think with us about how important it is that God is with you and knows you uh, all of the time and everywhere. So here, uh, God's word from Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will guide, will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We'll end our reading there. There's some uh, statements, the truth or untruth of which is uh, more dependent on how it's meant or how it's heard. You might consider the statement, for example, God loves you just the way you are. Uh, true statement in one sense, in the sense that God requires nothing of us uh, to, to come to him and receive his salvation. We contribute nothing to that. We don't have to become anything to be received in Christ. Um, but too easily and too often, uh, salvation is thought of simply as forgiveness of your sins, and now you have your ticket to heaven. God loves you just the way you are, so it doesn't matter how you are. And the grace of God for growth and progress and holiness that's, that's mapped out graciously in the Ten Commandments that we've been studying, uh, that requires daily constant wrestling with sin and, and striving for uh, the Lord to be like him, uh, it can be neglected. I, I realized recently, um, scrolling through some things, there have been three full Hollywood movies and two uh, full documentaries made on, on one story in recent years, the, the account of the, 
um, Thai soccer boys uh, team that was trapped in the cave a number of years ago uh, in Thailand. Um, uh, the movie industry went crazy with it because it's a, it's a great story. Um, it, the, the, the team was miles into this cave when it flooded, uh, and so they were uh, completely lost and trapped, um, and they were there for more than a week uh, before they were found, and then there was this incredible uh, dramatic rescue by, by uh, expert divers and so on. It struck me as, as illustrative of something I'm, I'm trying to point out to us here. Imagine that the divers, after I think nine days, that they had found the boys, and then they swam back out, the divers, and they proclaimed to the press and everyone else, we saved them. We gave them food. We gave them water. They're, they'll be good in there for, for a long time. Well, that would be ridiculous. They, they were found, of course, to be saved, right, to be led out. Well, for you in Christ, you're not saved to be left where you are. Uh, salvation is not just a, a ticket you keep in your pocket to hand in when you die and go to heaven and, and not go to hell. You're saved for progress, saved for good works, as Paul puts it. Uh, there are many ways the Bible states that. James says it's that you would be mature and complete uh, in this life to a large degree. We're, we're to be renewing our minds. We're to be imitating Christ. Now, all of these are aspects of our growth and relationship to God. God's purpose for you to glorify him and enjoy him and become more like him and trust him more and love others more and more. Uh, so are you growing in the Christian life? Is, it, uh, is your most important relationship stronger? Is it closer? Is it more foundational than it has been? Are you actually progressing in godliness? And if, if not, what is hindering that? Uh, how can you grow? One, one crucial part of that is knowing what is hindering your growth. Uh, knowing what's in the way. Uh, that, that boys soccer team in, in Thailand uh, was stuck making no progress because of barriers, things in their way, things they couldn't see, things they didn't understand. They were relying then on those expert divers to, to guide them, to reveal those things to them. Well, in this psalm, Psalm 139, David pursues godliness and growth in his relationship with God by desiring to see himself as God sees him. That's the ultimate point and, and request of this psalm, that he would see himself as God sees him, that God would reveal to him the places in his life where he needs to change by the grace of God uh, to make progress to the glory of God. And so the psalm begins with this request, uh, Lord, or this, this statement rather, the statement, Lord, you have searched me and known me. But the knowledge that God has of him, but then it ends, if you look at verse 23, with a request, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. So in other words, Lord, you have searched me, you know me perfectly. And then by the end, he asks, Lord, keep searching me and show me what you know. I, I want to, you to see this morning, this is a, a bold and profound uh, and powerful requests and, and a necessary one for us to make. Uh, so let's look, uh, we're going to look at three sections in the psalm here. Those are the three points in your outline. So let's look first at uh, David's meditation on God's total knowledge of him. This is the best, the best known part of the psalm. It's the largest part of the psalm, the first 18 verses here. It, it describes God's comprehensive 
uh, exhaustive knowledge of David and, and of each of us. Um, it's a good example, I think, of the fact that Psalms often take a simple truth and then they force us to slow down and, and chew on it for a while and, and think about it and, and its many facets. You, you could summarize these 18 verses very simply uh, with something like, uh, Lord, your knowledge of me is total. That's In some sense, David's not saying anything more than that. Um, but it's too easy just to think, yeah, I know that's true, and then move on to the next thing. Uh, so have you really understood and chosen to live by and really really believe that truth? Let, let's see how David points us to slow down and chew on that a little bit. He begins in reflecting on God's complete and perfect knowledge of all that he does. Uh, verse 2, you know when I sit down, when I rise up. Verse 3, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Whatever I'm doing, Lord, you know me. And then that extends, um, to David says, to his thoughts. Uh, verse 2, you understand my thought from afar. Uh, verse 4, even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it all. We're often conscious that other people can see what we do and hear what we say and that kind of thing. But are, are you constantly conscious uh, that God knows perfectly all that you do, all that you say, all that you think? Uh, that's quite a thing to think about. Uh, listen to the, just the many verbs that describe God's knowledge in these first few verses. You searched me, known me, uh, know, you understand, you scrutinize, intimately acquainted with, uh, you know it all. It's, it's an intimate, exhaustive knowledge, no matter what I'm doing or what I'm thinking. Um, and then verse 6, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. In other words, David's saying, you know me better than I know myself. I, I can't even comprehend how well you understand me, how God, well God understands us. And then David moves on to describe how God's knowledge is, is total because he's everywhere. Uh, it's impossible to be hidden from God's knowledge. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? The implied answer, of course, is nowhere. He goes on, verse 8, uh, if, if I go up to heaven, if I go down to Sheol, uh, you're there. Uh, verse 9, uh, if I take the wings of the dawn, that's a way to ref refer to the east uh, in, in the ancient Middle East. Uh, if if uh, I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea. That's, I was just playing west. I was backwards. But uh, to the sea, that's the way we referred to uh, the west. So as far east as I could go, as far west as I could go. Um, verse 11, uh, darkness could be tried. Darkness won't work either, he says. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Darkness and light are alike to you. Uh, even if you're two miles deep in a cave in Thailand, in total darkness, and nobody knows you're there. Uh, there's no caves in God's knowledge, nowhere that his presence and knowledge aren't, aren't total and perfect. Uh, he goes on in, in verses 13 and following to speak of God's perfect knowledge in, in time uh, as creator in the past and the future. Uh, verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, you know, we, you can get to know someone, you can know someone first when they're born, right? And then you can progressively get to know them after that. Uh, that's not how God's knowledge of us works. It's not progressive. 
Uh, he doesn't learn about us. He knows us perfectly from eternity. Uh, he made every cell, every atom in your body. And then verse 16 Verse 16, you have seen my unformed substance. What is he referring to there? You're you're an embryo, right? Even you're an embryo. Uh, God knew you. Uh, God created you. Uh, Life belongs to God from conception. uh, uh, This this psalm is often cited uh, to support that truth. And then it moves on. David moves on to think about the future. Uh, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Uh, before you had one day as an embryo, uh, God had ordained all of your days. God knew all of your days. Before we move on, I want to just pose the question, having, having looked at David's description of God's exhaustive knowledge, is this knowledge that God has of you uh, terrifying uh, or is it comforting? Is it a bad thing or is it a good thing? And, and don't answer that question too quickly. I don't, I don't think it should be such an easy, uh, easy answer for us. This is a perfect, exhaustive knowledge of you that even you don't have. It's, it's a scrutiny that you can't get away from. There's no hiding from it. There's no break from it. And, and, and you add to that fact that we are sinners, that, that, and it extends even to your thoughts, your invisible thoughts. Who, who here... If your thoughts all day, every day, from your whole life, uh, were published or, or were projected in a giant screen over your head, would not be horribly ashamed. What an awful thing. We would have no friends. The fact that a holy and just creator God would have that sort of knowledge of you is, could not be good news, except for the covenant mercy of God towards you. Right? And that's, that's really an unspoken assumption of this psalm. That, that God has shown unconditional covenant love and mercy to David. That's the only way he can describe this kind of knowledge of him. And it not be a terrifying thing. It's in fact profoundly comforting to David and to us. And so this psalm, though it doesn't go into depth into it, presupposes that The grace of God, it presupposes the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus died in in the place of David and paid for his sins. That God loves David unconditionally in Christ. It presupposes David has nothing to hide. Not that he's perfect, as much as he'd probably like to hide, but has nothing to hide because God loves him. The same is is true for you. Uh, Think about how this, this knowledge is described in this psalm, it's, it's an intimate and personal knowledge of you. Uh, it's not just a general knowledge about you. Uh, it speaks of God in his knowledge laying his hands on you. Uh, he understands you. He formed you with his hands. This knowledge, how does it further describe it as a blessing? It's, it's a caring knowledge. Verse 10, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Again, uh, the NIV has their hold me fast. It's, it's God's care of you. Uh, his, his constant presence with you is not a, it's not a burden. The idea here is not primarily, I, I can't get away from God. You know, I, I east, west, up, down. I, I want to escape, but I can't. That's not the idea. The idea is that he will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, wherever you are or wherever you're forced to be. It's, it's sort of an Old Testament version of Romans 
8, the familiar verses in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God? It goes to that long list, this or that or that. And the answer is nothing, nothing ever. Uh, Owen and I recently, we've been listening uh, when we're in the car to audio, uh, audio version of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, I've always been a big Sherlock Holmes fan. I've read all of his stories. Most of his stories are short stories, but he wrote a few novels uh, shorter novels, and his most famous is The Hound of the Baskervilles, and that's the last one that we listened to, uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles, and it's about this, um, this may be a spoiler if you haven't read it, but it's about this giant hound uh, that lives out on the moor uh, in England, that's the, just this, this huge wasteland, and people live on the edge of the wasteland, but they're terrified of this hound that stalks people at night, and it can see you, but it, you can't see it, and it ends up killing a few people in the story, and um, it's just a terrifying thing. Compare that idea of a hound to a famous poem by Francis Thompson that, that takes inspiration from Psalm 139 to describe God. And the, the poem is called The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven. The idea being God's relentless pursuit of you, uh, but only for good, uh, for your good. Or just stop and consider the, the perfect complexity of the human body and the incomprehensible skill and wisdom that created it. Isn't that a comforting thought? That's the, the loving, caring wisdom that is with you, uh, hounding you in a, in a, in a good way, uh, in a loving way, uh, all the time. Uh, this knowledge is described as, as redemptive. It's salvific. It, it saves you. It's, uh, David speaks of God's knowledge through the future. Um, in verse 8, even if I make my bed in shale, that's the grave. Uh, even if I die, even when I die, uh, you are there. God is with us in and through death. There's, there's uh, an implied expectation of resurrection, of life beyond death uh, here in Psalm 139. And, and there are other places in the Psalms as well, even though it's not an idea that's developed as fully as in the New Testament. Um, verse 17, look at verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. That's probably not the most helpful English translation, thoughts, um, but because the, the, the word in this context in the Psalms and the prophets uh, means uh, plans, really. It's, it's plans or purposes. Uh, your plans for me, Lord, are, are precious to me, David said. So he's thinking about the future. In verses 13 to 16, he was thinking about the past. Um, verse 14, your, your works, wonderful are your works. That's a, a word or a phrase that's often used in the Psalms to speak about the, the great things God has done in the past. So often we read or sing about uh, his marvelous deeds or his mighty works. Those are God's plans that have happened, right? We've, we've seen them in the past and we can celebrate them. Uh, but here in verse 17, David's thinking about the future. Your, your, your plans for me are precious, Lord. Uh, psalm 40, verse 5, uh, is another psalm that brings those two things together. It says, you have multiplied, Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, the things you've done in the past, and your thoughts towards us, your, your plans for us. So David is amazed at God's uh, intimate care of his past, even from forming him in the womb, uh, and then thinks about God's plans for him in the future, uh, including resurrection. And I think verse 18 is a reference to that as well. The end of verse 18 says, When I awake, 
I am still with you. And I don't think David is, in, in recounting these incredible things, I don't think he's just talking about, you know, when the alarm go, clock goes off in the morning. Oh, God is still with me. Uh, he's saying more than that. It's, uh, I think, parallel to what he says at the end of Psalm 17, which has always been understood as a reference to a trust in the resurrection. Psalm 17 ends, When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. I will, I will see you. I'm going to die, but when I awake, I will still see you, Lord. Well, look at number two on your outline, <clears throat> the next section of the psalm. The psalm takes a seemingly abrupt turn then as David declares his opposition to evil. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. Verse 21, for example, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Very different from the first part of the psalm, and maybe hard to understand how this part fits. It feels maybe rather uncomfortable um, here in the middle of the psalm, middle end of the psalm. Psalm 139 is a fairly well-known psalm. Uh, uh, broadly, it's very quotable. Uh, it's used as a great and important proof text uh, for the sanctity of life in the womb. Uh, verse 7 is very well known. Verse 17 is very well known. Um, but I think very few people even know that this section exists in the psalm. Uh, verse 19 to 22. Uh, again, it's, it's uh, less comfortable, perhaps. Uh, the, the children's bulletins, like, for example, this morning, uh, are all about Psalm 139, but they've cut out this section here. Um, although I'm, I wouldn't want the challenge of illustrating these things. But um, what is David saying, and, and how does it fit with this psalm? Uh, well, one thing, one concept in theology that could help us with that is called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is the principle simply that there's, there's nothing contradictory in the scriptures. It's, they're not contradictory in any of their parts uh, because it's all inspired by God. Uh, and so the practical outworking of that is that we ought to use those parts of the scriptures that are, that are clearer and often clear and repeated uh, to interpret, to understand those parts of the scripture that are, that are less clear, that are harder to understand. Um, so what clear teaching from the scriptures might help us understand uh, and, and what makes us uncomfortable in these verses here? Well, a couple of things in, in the Psalms. There's consistently over and over again a longing uh, and an expectation for the nations, the Gentiles, unbelievers, the wicked, whatever they're called, uh, to turn to God, uh, to come to him, to be saved, to worship him. That's a desire David expresses over and over again. Uh, Psalm 22 is a striking example. Psalm 67 is an example of that. Um, we could go to the New Testament and consider Jesus' command to love our enemies. Uh, not only not to hate them, but to love them. Uh, we could consider the fact that Psalms, uh, though they have language like this in various places, never speak of personal vengeance. Uh, so we see here it's not a personal, spiteful hatred of, of individuals that David is talking about. Um, it doesn't apply to you know, some annoying, troublesome neighbor that we have down the street in that way. His concern, as always in the Psalms, is for offenses against God. It's offense against God and his truth. It's, it's not just simple unbelief or unbelieving individuals. He describes men of bloodshed. Uh, they speak against you wickedly. 
They hate you, Lord. They rise up against you. What David is describing is, is open, violent opposition to God and, and to his church. And, and he's, he's disavowing that worldview, uh, really. Um, he's in verse 22. Uh, they have become my enemies. I think the emphasis really is they have become my enemies. Lord, these, these aren't my friends in the sense that I'm, I'm siding with you and with truth and with grace. And, and elsewhere through the Psalms, we have his desire and longing that they would, they would ultimately come and, and worship the Lord with him as well. So I think the logic of the Psalm here to this point is that anyone who's experienced the, the loving, intimate, covenantal, unthinkably gracious, caring knowledge of God, as David describes... Uh, cannot but stand opposed to that which God opposes and, and says is wrong. And what God hates, I hate. That's what David is professing. And, and by implication, I, I love now what you love, Lord. And so it's a profession that David stands on God's side. He's, he renounces evil. It, it's not vitriolic hate speech just against someone who's not like David. It doesn't preclude genuine openness to and hope for repentance among those who oppose God. But he's saying, Lord, these aren't, these aren't my people, those who hate you. Uh, in terms of their evil ways, uh, they're not my people. I, I wanted to quote Calvin on this section of the psalm here. Um, a little, little bit longer quote than I normally uh, would do. I think it's very helpful he says, we have more need to attend to this passage, these several verses here, because the keen sense we have of what concerns our private interest, honor, and convenience makes us never hesitate to engage when someone injures ourselves. So we're always quick to oppose people when they, when they offend us, right, personally. But he goes on, while we are abundantly timid and cowardly in defending the glory of God. And that's what David is doing here. Thus, as each of us studies our own interest and our own advantage, the only thing that incites us to conflict is a desire to avenge our private wrongs. We are less affected when the majesty of God is outraged. But as a proof of our having a fervent zeal for God, when we declare irreconcilable war with the wicked and those who hate God, rather than court their favor at the expense of God's plan. Uh, the hatred which the psalmist speaks is directed to the sins rather than the persons of the wicked. We are, so far as we are able, to work toward peace with all men. We are to speak the good of all, and if possible, they are to be reclaimed by kindness and good works. Only so far as they are enemies to God, we must strenuously confront what they do and say. So Calvin is trying to help us see the balance there in, in radically opposing those who oppose God and opposing what is evil and wicked. We've talked about how this, this psalm is often referenced in, uh, relative to abortion, while at the same time hoping with the rest of the Psalter that they would be saved and, and loving uh, our enemies as, as we're able. Uh, that's what David is saying, Lord, be, because you're such a wonderfully gracious God who knows and loves me, I, I've separated myself from wickedness, and, and I, now I stand against it with you. And, and I love what you love, I hate what you hate. And that, that reflects that difficult balance, I think, that we're, we're called to love our enemies and do good, but we're called to hate and totally separate ourselves from sin. 
Well, that leads us to understand the powerful ending of this psalm, then. If, if you look at number three on your outline, David's request. Uh, I was at Synod a few years ago, um, traveling from the airport to where our meetings were, and met a pastor from Toronto who had just uh, just come down uh, for the meetings, and he told me this long story about how he got stopped at the border uh, by U.S. Border Patrol agents, and they requested what became a very lengthy uh, and uncomfortable search into his person and his vehicle and his past and, and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, not something desirable, right? Not something you would ask for uh, or invite. Uh, and yet here David requests of God a thorough and, and revealing search. He wants to know what God knows about him. So the, the sense of the, the whole psalm, the flow of this psalm, is David says, Lord, you have searched me, you know me exhaustively, I, I can't escape that. Uh, and then the, the section we just looked at affirms that God opposes and will destroy his enemies. And David says, I profess to be the enemy of everything, and it is your enemy, Lord, but if I have not separated myself from those things, then show me. Show me where my, my profession is still inconsistent with the way that I'm living. Verse 21, do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord? It, it's a question. Then uh, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David's saying, you're, you're a holy God. My, my profession is that I've separated myself from evil. I've given myself to you. Because you are all-knowing, you're everywhere present, and you know me better than I know myself. You're the creator of all things. You know that I am not perfect, so, so search and show me uh, where I'm still failing, where I'm still uh, fearing man, where I'm still doubting you. Where I'm giving offense, verse 24, and lead me in the everlasting way. David doesn't suppose that he's arrived by, by professing to be opposed to all that God is opposed to. He doesn't profess to be perfect. Uh, he knows that to grow in his relationship with God, he needs to see his sin. Uh, he needs to see his weaknesses. Uh, God needs to reveal to him where he falls short, where he's still thinking and speaking and acting um, not like a child of God where he's still living at odds with, with his creator and savior. What a thing for a sinful person to ask uh, of this God. Uh, David doesn't express a desire to uh, escape God's knowledge. Uh, he's confident that God loves him, that God's working all things together for his good, that God wants him to grow. He knows he can't trust himself. Only God can show him where his uh, relationship with, with God is going wrong or what's hindering it. And so he says, Lord, don't stop searching me. Keep searching me and share with me what, what you know. It's, it's a bold request. And the answer and the implications to the answer of that question, that request of God, are painful. Right? It's, it's going to call for repentance. And repentance is, is tearing parts of ourselves out. It's difficult work, and the, the world, the flesh, the devil will, will do everything possible to keep you from seeing yourself as God sees you, from seeing yourself rightly. Uh, but it's necessary. 
Uh, do you desire to see your sin and, and so to grow in your relationship with God? And it's not just about recognizing um, outward, outward outworkings of sin, obvious sin. There, there are many things that are probably obvious to us. We could list things that we uh, struggle with, the ways that we uh, fail. Uh, you don't need God, for example, necessarily to show you that you're struggling with anger with your coworker. That, that's sort of outwardly obvious. More than that, you need God to show you why, right? To show you your heart. What are you, what are you loving inordinately? What are you failing to love? That's leading to your anger. The psalm ought to prompt self-reflection in us. Uh, do we properly hate what God hates? That's a, a, a strong word that's used in this psalm. Do you, do you truly love what he loves? Do we laugh at or treat lightly or even accept what God says he hates or abhors? Uh, do we understand with God just how evil and destructive sin is? Are we indifferent to or neglect what God loves? You don't need God, for example, to show you necessarily that you're impatient with your spouse. That's, that's sort of the outward uh, conflict, the obvious thing. More than that, you need, Lord, uh, you, you need God to show you, Lord, show me, search me. Uh, how is it that I'm loving myself? How am I failing to love others? How, how am I failing to hate sin? If you desire to be in a, a better relationship with your Lord, uh, more like God, closer to him, uh, then this is your request. Uh, please, Lord, with all your knowledge and love, will you seek out the selfishness and the idolatry and the greed and the pride and the false belief in my life and show it to me. Uh, give me a hatred of it and a love for you. Help me to replace it then uh, with, with all those things we talked about that that are implied in the Ten Commandments, the positive side uh, of those uh, with being like Christ. And the God who is wonderfully described in this psalm is, is faithful. You look at the uh, verse immediately before Psalm 139. It affirms that God does not forsake the work of his hands. Uh, he will answer your prayer. As Paul says in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this uh, searching psalm, uh, convicting psalm, uh, for, uh, also for the wonderful uh, things that it affirms of you and your uh, intimate and exhaustive knowledge of us uh, and yet your love for us, that that is a, a comfort and not a terror to us, that it's part of your care of us. So we ask with David that you would, um, in your knowledge of us, uh, show us ourselves, help us to see ourselves rightly, uh, that we could be, become more like you. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.